When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 37, titled Legislating Language, wherein we discuss whether a tomato is a fruit or a vegetable, and who cares. Hey, Mikey. (laughs) Who indeed. Hey, Bobby, how you doing? Splendid, thank you. And yourself? I am wonderful, thank you. You are wonderful. I enjoy doing this with you because you are wonderful. I know. We love each other, Bob. Hmm. <laughs> Just you think I'm wonderful, but that's where it ends. <laughs> no, it's the love that dare not speak its name. So today's episode is about a series of court cases in which a dictionary played at least some part in deciding the outcome of the case. So we know it's often settled bar bets. But you're saying this extends to actual jurisprudence. Yeah. The first case I want to tell you about is from the late 1800s. It involves John Nix and company. And John Nix, as far as I can tell, the company was his sons, which were John, George, and Frank. They had a, an importing business. They imported what the New York Times referred to as a large quantity of Bermuda tomatoes from the West Indies. Now, Bob, is a tomato a fruit or a vegetable? I was told that it was counterintuitively a fruit and, in fact, a berry, uh, but I just really don't sweat the difference while I'm putting it on my BLT. Well, it's important to sweat the difference sometimes, and I'll tell you why. Because back in the late 1800s, the tax collector at the Port of New York, his name was Edward Hedden, had to decide whether or not certain items coming into this country were levied a duty, and if so, how much? According to the Tariff Act of 1883, vegetables in their natural state, or in salt or brine, were taxed at 10%. Fruit, on the other hand, was free. So Edward Hedden was charging Mr. Nix and his sons 10%, and Nix said, whoa, wait a second, a tomato is a fruit. I should get that money back, and he sued. So Mr. Nix has, in a sense, botany on his side, right? A fruit is the part of a flowering plant that contains the seeds. In general, we think of everything else, the root, the stem, the leaves, as vegetables. So the problem is that while fruit has a more or less specific botanical definition, vegetable does not, and it's used as a kind of catch-all. So while nuts and beans and grains are technically fruit, we don't think of them that way. What this case illustrates, I think, is the way in which we divide the world into categories, right? However arbitrary, however rigorous those categories are, it affects our language, and our language in turn affects the way we divide the world into categories. Mm -hmm. So the problem here is that the taxonomy of science, namely botany, conflicts with the taxonomy of just regular folks living. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what the court had to decide. So this went all the way to the Supreme Court. 
the court said in its opinion, the single question in this case is whether tomatoes are to be classed as vegetables or as fruit. The judge issuing the opinion was a guy named Horace Gray, who a few years after this case sided with the majority in Plessy v. Ferguson, a much more famous case, which essentially sanctioned the separate but equal racial segregation, not not exactly Mr. Gray's shining moment. But in this case, he said, okay, well, let's look at the dictionary. And over the course of arguments in front of the Supreme Court, the definition from either Webster's or other dictionaries of both fruit and vegetable were read, and the definitions of not just tomato, but pea, eggplant, cucumber, squash, pepper, potato, turnip, parsnip, cauliflower, cabbage, carrot, bean, and I think others. So they really went all in on the dictionary in this case. That isn't a high court. That's a greengrocer. So here's what Gray wrote in his opinion. Botanically speaking, tomatoes are the fruit of a vine, just as are cucumbers, squashes, beans, and peas. But in the common language of the people, whether sellers or consumers, all of these are vegetables, which are grown in kitchen gardens and which, whether eaten cooked or raw, are, like potatoes, carrots, parsnips, turnips, beets, cauliflower, cabbage, celery, and lettuce, usually served at dinner in, with, or after the soup, fish, or meats, which constitute the principal part of the repast, and not, like fruits generally, as dessert. All power to the people, baby. I mean, it sounds like a quite prudent decision, although strikingly, almost stunningly non-legalistic. The law tends to cleave to precision, and here it has uh, come down on the side of popular understanding or misunderstanding. That, in fact, leads us beautifully into the next case that I want to talk about. But before I do, I want to mention a couple of other things. As you know, Bob, I am from the great state of New Jersey, which knows a thing or two about tomatoes. Uh, Yes, but I I think you should clarify, or allow me, that the Jersey tomato, the vine-grown beefsteak tomato, is a quite prized vegetable or fruit mainly for its very earthy flavor that has nothing to do with the stuff that you tend to get in supermarkets. But it's regional. I, you know, I don't think anybody elsewhere in the world or even west of the Mississippi is familiar with uh, New Jersey's claim to superior tomatoness. Yeah, I think what you're trying to say, Bob, is as we would say in New Jersey, nobody got nothing on us when it comes to tomatoes. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> right? You took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah. So in my home state of New Jersey in 2005, the Agriculture and Natural Resources Committee of the legislature passed a measure declaring the Jersey tomato New Jersey's official state vegetable. One journalist at the time wrote that sponsors of the measure get around the fact that the tomato is considered a fruit by using a century-old U.S. Supreme Court ruling that slapped a vegetable tariff on tomatoes. Senator Ellen Karcher, a Republican from Monmouth, was quoted as saying, botanically, it's a fruit. Legally, it's a vegetable. Any of these bills that promote statewide pride is something we should embrace. I have never been more proud to be from New Jersey. (laughs) Well, congratulations. I never suspected this would turn on a a partisan divide. But this reminds me that uh, President Reagan... While he was in office, under his his Department of Agriculture classified ketchup, tomato-based product, as a vegetable for the purposes 
of uh, meeting school lunch requirements. Yeah, I believe for the purposes of the food pyramid. Uh, Yeah, I don't think that made it to the Supreme Court or the dictionary, but it was fundamentally weird. All right, one more thing about tomatoes. The word tomato, and this is a bit of a tangent, is responsible for the fall from grace of one of my childhood heroes. What? So have you ever read, Bob, The Silent Season of a Hero? I haven't. It's a 1966 Esquire magazine profile of Joe DiMaggio by Gay Talese, which, you know, I read obviously much later. And at one point in the piece, Gay Talese is in the car in San Francisco along Fisherman's Wharf, driving to the Golden Gate Bridge with Joe DiMaggio and Lefty O'Doul, who was a former professional baseball player turned manager, in fact, who managed Joe DiMaggio when Joe DiMaggio was in the minor leagues at the San Francisco Seals. They're driving to go golfing north of San Francisco. And as Talese puts it in his piece, Joe DiMaggio notices a lovely blonde at the wheel of a car nearby and exclaims, look at that tomato, at which point O'Doul turns around and says, where, where? Now, when I read this, I thought to myself, really? I mean, I know that that was a different time, and I know that Joe DiMaggio was of a different generation. But calling a woman a tomato, it just seems so absurdly crass and silly that I got to say, you know, he fell down a few notches for me, Hmm. and it was a tough moment. Well, I'm not for the first time impressed by your sweet nature. But a little surprised because that remark is so much of its time and just the most brazen sort of sexism was so ingrained in the culture. I'm shocked not at all. And by the way, tomato-wise, Joe DiMaggio wound up with Marilyn Monroe. All right. So you're saying I should give both him and you now a pass. (laughs) Perhaps him more than me. Because I live in 2014. (laughs) Right. So uh, I I fear I've done it again. But, you know, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. And there's no mention in Talisa's piece about whether that blonde was, in fact, a fruit or a vegetable. How disappointing. Okay. Let's uh, move on to our second court case, the one that you sort of foreshadowed with your comment about Horace Gray's opinion being populist. Bob, what do you call those small metal rods that are threaded on one end and have a head on the other end? What do you call those things? Screws. Are you sure? Are you sure they're not bolts? They can be bolts. They're both metal rods threaded. Screws are pointed for purchase in wood or even metal, and bolts are blunt for threading through nuts. So, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. You feel good about that answer? I feel fantastic about that answer because, you know, it's correct. Okay. Well, at issue here in Rocknell Fastener v. United States were more than 50 different kinds of these fasteners that Rocknell imported from Japan in the late 1990s. If you go back and look at the tariff law, and I did, you'll find a category, Chapter 73, called Articles of Iron or Steel. Chapter 73 verse 18, I guess you'd say, is screws, bolts, nuts, coach screws, screw hooks, rivets, cotter pins, washers, including spring washers, and similar articles of iron or steel. Chapter 73, verse 18, 1520, and 1580. So in other words, if these fasteners are to be considered bolts, they would be taxed at 0.3% 
if they were to be considered screws, they would get taxed at 8.9%. Guess which one Rocknell was arguing they were? I think they were saying that they were importing bolts. Yes. The less tariffed fastener. Exactly. Now, who gets to decide what distinguishes a bolt from a screw, right? The court is not qualified to do that. What do they know? But the language you use to identify one versus the other is what needs to be decided. They consulted Webster's, they consulted the American Heritage Dictionary, and they concluded that these categories were indeed fuzzy. They said, okay, we need an authority here. So they turned to the American National Standards Institute and the American Society of Mechanical Engineers. And they said, these nerds will know because they publish a guide essentially dictating standards for these things. What they found was that these organizations define a bolt as an externally threaded fastener designed for insertion through holes in assembled parts and is normally intended to be tightened or released by torquing a nut. And a screw is defined by these bodies as an externally threaded fastener capable of being inserted into holes in assembled parts of mating with a preformed internal thread or forming its own thread and of being tightened or released by torquing the head. So they said, okay, we have to decide. Of course they have to make a decision because you're looking at like a 25X penalty for screwiness versus boltiness. Right. What Rocknell tried to argue then was that what all of these definitions have in common is that a bolt is at the very least a rod which fastens two or more objects together. And they said, so let's just call it that, in which case we could call the things that we're importing bolts. And the court said, no, that's ridiculous. <laughs> in fact, the court said, I'll read you what the court said. They said, plaintiff reduces its dictionary definitions almost to the point of abstraction, such that its definition for bolt is overly broad and ambiguous. So the court was saying, all of these things are, are rods that fasten things together. And you're basically just trying to create one category. So is an axle and a curtain rod. Right. The court is right. It's preposterously broad. So the court said, one is meant to be torqued with the head and the other is meant to be torqued with a nut. And so therefore, the things that you're importing are screws. Now, Bob, the reason I thought your comment at the end of the tomato case was interesting was because, as you implied, in order to arrive at what constitutes a common understanding of the difference between a fruit and a vegetable, the justices saw fit to focus on the ordinary, right, on the dinner table. Common understanding yes. as opposed to expert definitions. Right. And in a sense, they were forced to do the opposite here. They had to really look at what the standards guides said, written by people who are engineers, to arrive at a common understanding of the difference between a bolt and a screw, even if, for most people, those categories are indeed pretty fuzzy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Case number three. Once upon a time in the tariff law, I think it's changed since, as tariff law does year to year, there was a chapter 95 titled Toys, Games, and Sports Equipment. This case involves a part of the tariff structure that distinguishes between, quote, dolls representing only human beings and parts and accessories thereof, on the one hand, and, quote, toys representing animals or other non-human creatures, for example, robots and monsters, <laughs> and parts and accessories thereof. Uh, can I just stop you to say that 
some percentage of our listenership, their brains are about to explode because <laughs> they're going to realize that there were people, hundreds of them, employed at the Commerce Department in Washington, bureaucrats <laughs> trying to trying to set different tariff regimes for teddy bears and baby dolls. <laughs> The very definition of big government. There's going to be chunks of skull and hair on people's ceilings when they start thinking about the implications here. So this case is called Toy Biz Inc. v. United States. Now, Toy Biz is a subsidiary of Marvel Comics, and they imported a number of action figures. This case is from about 10 years ago from China, including X-Men characters. Customs said, okay, these are dolls. Dolls are taxed at 12%. Thank you. Moving on. Toy Biz said, wait, 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 wait. To be classified as a doll, the law says that the item must represent only, i.e. exclusively, a human being. And then the court goes on to say that Toy Biz points to the tentacles, claws, wings, or other non-human features that a number of the items at issue possess. Toy Biz thus concludes that the items at issue are not classifiable as dolls because the figures represent creatures other than humans, and possess features characteristic of non-humans. By the way, toys, for the purposes of tariff law, would be taxed at 6.8%, considerably less than 12%. Yeah, I know who can solve this case. It's the Tom Hanks character in Big. (laughs) We'll get there. Customs came back and argued this. They said, all of these figures have the appearance of human beings by virtue of having a head, mouth, eyes, nose, hair, arms, torso, breasts, muscles, and, with one exception, legs and feet. They are noticeably lifelike and constructed in a manner which permits an impressive range and simulation of human movement. They are dressed as human beings and equipped with weapons and accessories in a manner associated with actual (laughs) or fictional warfare. And finally, they possess such human characteristics as gender, race, physical impediment or handicap, and nationality. Once again, someone is paid $87,000 a year by the taxpayers to make that argument. But I can solve this case. I can solve it. I know the answer. I'm actually dying to know what your opinion is here. (laughs) First of all, the person representing the Customs Service did describe characteristics of humans, but also described characteristics of every alien species ever envisioned in the history of science fiction. They're almost all humanoid. So there is nothing disqualifying about having a kind of human-like appearance that doesn't narrow things down at all. You have, Bob, exposed yourself as a deeply ignorant man. Now, I know that... (laughs) Excuse me. I'm sorry. What you meant to say is I have exposed myself once again as a deeply (laughs) ignorant. (laughs) Yes. I know you have your little areas of expertise, but this is not one of them. And you'll find out in a minute why. So the court said, we have to figure out what this language in the law means. What does it mean by representing human beings? And what does it mean by only human beings? To decide what was meant by only, the court consulted the Oxford English Dictionary and concluded that only meant dolls representing human beings as opposed to any other beings. Pretty simple, right? Mm -hmm. The court then said, okay, well, what does representing mean? And again, they consulted the OED and concluded that it meant more than just 
resembling. It means embodying, they said. It means serving as an example of. And so the court ruled, quote, whatever the degree is to which they resemble human beings, the court finds that these action figures do not represent human beings and are therefore not properly classifiable as dolls. The court said that the fact that they were mutants was very similar to the two categories that were actually mentioned in the tariff law, if you remember, robots and monsters. The court said a mutant is someone possibly originally belonging to human species who has undergone change and become something other than human. All right, Mike, I'm, I'm waiting to hear how I was wrong. I think the court agrees with me that humanoid isn't the same as human, that these are toys. Well, Bob, if you know anything about the X-Men, and it's clear that you don't, you would know that a primary motif of that series, of that comic, is the struggle by many of the X-Men and X-Women against discrimination and for the express right to be thought of and recognized legally as fully human. So shortly after this verdict came down, the Wall Street Journal quoted Brian Wilkinson, who is the editor of the online site XFan, who said, this is almost unthinkable. Marvel's superheroes are supposed to be as human as you or I. They live in New York, they have families and go to work, and now they're no longer human? <laughs> all right, all right, all right. I grant you, but I am going to fall back on exactly the kind of Clintonian legalism that the court employed to parse this question. And that is that the toys being imported were not exclusively X-Men, but a collection of action figures, some of whom may not have such expressed claims to humanity. And I know the meaning of all isn't the same as some. Well, in fact, the court actually goes through the figures essentially one by one to differentiate, you know, the X-Men from some of the other ones. Nevertheless, they ruled for Marvel, but Marvel then got nervous because they saw that their fans actually had a point and they issued a statement, a statement, I, by the way, that I think is somewhat disingenuous and uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> and cynical. Yeah. But do go on. They said, don't fret, Marvel fans. Our heroes are living, breathing human beings, but humans who have extraordinary abilities. A decision that the X-Men figures indeed do have non-human characteristics further proves our characters have special out-of-this-world powers. Oh, please. Has there ever been a more transparent attempt to play both sides? No, they totally sold out the author's vision. But, uh, you know, I was, it's, it's funny. This time you anticipated something I was going to say. Getting right back to whether a tomato is a, a fruit or a vegetable, ultimately, who cares? Who cares? A bunch of comic book nerds? Except that, Mike. Except that. Let me ask you a question, okay? Oh, I'm all ears. Did you like the movie Brick? <laughs> Why, I think you know I did. Yeah, and I hate you for that. I began this episode saying that you're wonderful, but you detected an asterisk, and there was one. I hate that you liked Brick, which was, as far as I'm concerned, execrable. And it's hard for me to even accept the notion that you could watch more than 20 minutes of it, much less embrace it as a piece of legitimate cinematic art. So I guess uh, some of these cultural things do matter. See how I brought that full circle, though? Huh? How about a little shout-out, Mikey? 
we got the totally unrehearsed and random opening of the show fitting in so snugly with the exciting climax. Listeners can't see me now, but I'm doing a victory lap around my microphone, even as we speak. Okay, so if that was the exciting climax, Bob, let's consider this the coda. This is a case that I think provides a lesson that we can generalize to all of these and maybe even to life itself. It's the summer of 1926, and a guy named William McBoyle operates a commercial airport in Illinois. He has a pilot who works for him named A.J. Lacey, and he gives Lacey a couple hundred dollars to steal an airplane from a company called the Aircraft Corporation, which is nearby in Illinois, to steal the airplane and bring it back to his airport with the ultimate goal of flying it down to Texas, where he plans to lease an airport there and set up shop during the winter months. Sounds like a plan, right? How could it go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) No, it sounds foolproof. (laughs) (laughs) So, So he gets the plane at his airport. He changes the serial number, paints over the plane so that it looks different, tells his pilot Lacey to fly it first to Oklahoma, stop there, and then make his way down to Texas. The pilot gets to Oklahoma, and McBoyle sends him a telegram essentially saying, abort. It appears that the authorities are on to him, and he says, you know, come back. Now, McBoyle is nervous. He wants to try and cover his tracks. He tells Lacey to essentially take one of their planes, the same model as the one they stole, fly it to Oklahoma. Lacey crashes on his way. The whole thing goes wrong, and McBoyle ends up in custody. <laughs> this sounds like a, uh, a real-life version of the Sam Raimi movie, A Simple plan. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. A really bad criminal idea just uh, going to pieces every which way. But, But how does this relate to what we're discussing? McBoyle is charged under a law that had passed some years earlier called the National Motor Vehicle Theft Act. This act criminalizes the theft of what it called motor vehicles, which it said shall include an automobile, automobile truck, automobile wagon, motorcycle, or any other self-propelled vehicle not designed for running on rails. McBoyle said, wait a second, I didn't steal a motor vehicle. I stole an, an aircraft, which is a ship. That's not covered under this law. The lower court, before this got to the Supreme Court, which believe it or not, it did, the lower court said, an airplane is self-propelled, by means of a gasoline motor. It runs partly on the ground, but principally in the air. It furnishes a rapid means for transportation of persons and comparatively light articles of freight. It therefore serves the same general purpose as an automobile, automobile truck, or motorcycle. And therefore, construing an airplane to come within the general term, any other self-propelled vehicle, does not offend. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. So... We're right back to the tomato, because by the definition cited by the lower court, an airplane performs the same functions as an automobile, and for the purposes of this case, is an automobile. But if you ask people at the dinner table, or in the workshop, or at the airport, or on the, on the highway, nobody, but nobody would look at an airplane and call it an automobile. So if the tomato's precedent prevails here, This guy, McBoyle, is going to get off scot-free. Okay, so let's see where this goes. 
I talked briefly about this case with my wife, who's a lawyer, and she points out that the law, in an ironic way, is trying to be very broad here by enumerating all of these different kinds of motor vehicles. But what it actually is doing is narrowing itself by naming only things of really a particular kind of class, which are vehicles that run on the ground. And it even excludes those that run on rails. So it's saying trains don't count here. None other than the great Oliver Wendell Holmes, who issued the opinion in this case, agreed with her. Holmes said, no doubt etymologically it is possible to use the word to signify a conveyance working on land, water, or air. But in everyday speech, vehicle calls up the picture of a thing moving on land. He then concludes with this, I think, brilliant paragraph. He says, although it is not likely that a criminal will carefully consider the text of the law before he murders or steals, it is reasonable that a fair warning should be given to the world in language that the common world will understand of what the law intends to do if a certain line is passed. To make the warning fair, so far as possible, the line should be clear. When a rule of conduct is laid down in words that evoke in the common mind only the picture of vehicles moving on land, the statute should not be extended to aircraft simply because it may seem to us that a similar policy applies, or upon the speculation that, if the legislature had thought of it, very likely broader words would have been used. Judgment reversed. So it's, it was the tomato ruling redux, correct? Yes, and of course, this case doesn't involve something as relatively trivial as whether you tax something at 1% versus another. This is, you know, more serious. This involves a criminal offense. But I alluded to a kind of larger lesson earlier. And this is one that I read by a law professor named Stephen Wasatsky, who wrote about this case in the Florida Bar Journal a few years ago. He says that the principal lesson in this case is that in the search for statutory meaning, context trumps literalism. Maybe we should make that the you know, official, unofficial motto of Lexicon Valley. It's a, a kind of language truism that works really well in the law. It works especially well when you're trying to decide the law based on language. As you say, Mike, if this show has any kind of undergirding philosophy, it, it concerns the malleability of a living language. And I guess it's comforting to know that the law hues to the very same principle that it's more important to understand what people mean than to be an originalist. Yeah, and I think what's so wise about Holmes's decision is that, you know, this guy McBoyle is so clearly, I mean, the guy was a weasel, right? Holmes knows that. But Holmes is saying, you know, we as the government have a duty not to overreach. And if we want our legal system and our laws to operate in a way that comports with the higher ideals of this country, then we need to be clear about the boundaries and the lines that can't be crossed. This time, you get off, at least you get off with regard to whatever the severe penalties would be under this law, but we'll do better in the future. Hmm. Well, Mike, I, I guess that's why I've always said what I've always said about Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. And what's that? <laughs> what a tomato. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, if you want to nominate someone for our uh, Supreme Court cheesecake calendar or talk about anything else, please email us at slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. That's slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. You can listen to all of our previous episodes if you visit slate.com slash lexiconvalley. 
please subscribe to our feed in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter. It's at Lexicon Valley. I want to thank Luke Glidden for giving me this idea on Twitter. And I want to thank Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcast. All right, Mikey. You can head back to Jersey. I think we're done here. Yeah, I'll be heading up the parkway looking for some tomatoes. <laughs> Later, Gator. Gator.